I invite you to join me in your copy of the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible to call your own, we have some for you. I would love nothing more than to give you a copy of the Bible to call your own. Just please take me up on that at the end of the service. But this morning we will join 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The words should be on the screen as well. I want you to consider for a moment the value of an apprenticeship. The value of an apprenticeship. These were once far more common in our country, more prominent than they are today, because in former days our society was less technological, uh, less dependent on formal education, uh, going to college, and it was far more reliant on the trades. And in order to become proficient at a trade, you absolutely had to apprentice under someone. It was absolutely necessary that a person decide on a trade and learn how to do it from a master, someone who was farther down the road and more able to pass along this hidden wisdom, these tricks of the trade that go with the job. Uh, Whitney and I were friends, or we are friends with a photographer, a very, um, we didn't know this at the time, but uh, in between the time of, of uh, our wedding in 2012 and now, he, he, he's become a very highly sought after photographer. He doesn't even take new clients because he, he, he stays busy uh, keeping up, taking photos of those whose weddings he shot many years before. But the interesting thing about this photographer is that he learned his trade in the 90s. During the time of film, right, this, this thing, it, it came in these little cartridges and, and you would put them into cameras and have to pull a little bit of it out and, and feed it into a 35 millimeter camera. And you can imagine the, the kind of challenge that that would be for a professional to shoot a wedding before digital camera technology. See, today, I mean, anybody can have a digital camera and can just snap, 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 but he learned this craft when all of these different little details about lighting and and, and about angles and all this stuff was so important if you were going to be a successful film photographer, and now he's been able to to take this knowledge that he learned from his his master. He apprenticed under this, this very skilled photographer back in the 90s. He was able to transfer that knowledge into the digital age, and now he shoots weddings that are just incredible. It's just something different about the way that he does things. Another friend of ours owned a Chevrolet dealership here in Kentucky, a friend of a friend. And he had this this real problem because in order to do recall work for GM, you had to have at least one factory-trained technician on site if you were going to get the the recall side of business. People have recalls and they come in and you make money as a dealership off being able to provide this service. But he could not find anyone who wanted to go and apprentice and, and, and go through the factory certification process. He was even offering any kid out of high school, any kid with, a, with like a high school diploma or a two-year degree who wanted to go through it, he would pay for them to go and apprentice and to become factory certified and he would promise them a six-figure salary as like a 22-year-old kid or a 20-year-old kid, if they would just go through it, he would pay for it, and then he would give them a job 
when they got out and he could not find anybody who was willing to go through the apprenticeship. Another individual I know has told me whose identity is being uh, concealed to protect the innocent. He has told me that it takes four years to make a Navy SEAL and it takes eight years to make a good one. So you can imagine if you go into the Navy SEAL program, let's say that you get selected at age 25, and I don't know, that may be too young, I don't know, but let's say they go into it at age 25, you're not considered proficient at your job until you're 33. And then how many more years do you, I mean, I'm 34, and I already know what my body's starting to do. I mean, how many years do you really have before your body begins to no longer be able to do this job? There's such a a tight window of of usefulness from, from the moment that you become adept at your job until the moment that you can no longer do your job but it takes this this eight-year process that is like something of a of an apprenticeship serving on this team and being brought along by these other navy seals the fact of the matter is there are just some jobs that you can't learn from a book There are just certain tricks of the trade that cannot be taught from a podium or through an online seminar And what we're learning today in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is that the very same thing is true about becoming a disciple. The very same thing is true about following Jesus. We must be apprenticed. We must be led by people in the faith who are older than us, who are wiser than us, and who have lived a little more life than we have. We must be apprenticed if we are ever going to really know the depths of what it means to follow Jesus, really. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 4 that the deep knowledge of the gospel can only be worked out and can only be known in something like an apprenticeship. My father-in-law is here today, and he's, he's just an incredible carpenter. He's like a magician. And I just, when I'm helping him with something, uh, very seldom do I make anything. I always help him make something, right? And I learned these little tricks of the trade, like, like how to use a miter saw just to take off a sixteenth of an inch, you know, this little thing that I never would have figured out on my own. But you see, if you, if you raise the miter saw, I'm sorry, if you lower the miter saw, I'm try, still trying to get it right. If you lower the miter saw and then butt the board up against the blade and then lift it and then saw, it'll take off a sixteenth of an inch because, you know, half of the teeth are facing outside and half are facing inside. You can just shave off just a little bit, a little bit at a time until it falls right into place. These little tricks of the trade that can only be taught through Watching someone else do it. I could never have figured that out just piddling in my garage. But notice what 1 Corinthians 4 says right here in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 4, 14. I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Can I be transparent with you? Uh, about something that, that I'm always feeling and I'm, hope, I'm hoping that I'm growing as a pastor, right? And I hope that you see growth and development in me. I don't, I don't believe that I've arrived. There's this great temptation between young pastors and old pastors to remain faithful. See, young pastors are often very firebrandish. Like the world is very black and white. There's, there's moral clarity, 
And over age and over time, and you, you have kids and then you have grandkids and you, you kind of settle into this, I'm known and I have a long track record. And, and by the end of your life, if you're not careful, you won't finish well because you end up mellowing. And you end up backing off of what's true. Whereas when, when you were young, you were kind of like breathing fire all the time and scolding and that's not good. But then by the time you're old, it's, it's almost like it's, it's hard to hang on to what's true and it's easy to not finish well. You hear Paul's heart right here? He's saying, listen, I'm trying to walk this line well. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. He's saying, you could have heard me and you could have become ashamed because you see that you're failing in a couple of ways, but that's not my heart. My heart is not to body slam you. My heart is not to just bring a harsh word every week. So I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He's coming across to them as a father. You see that? For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See what Paul's saying here? He's saying, I, I'm coming to you as a father. It, it may be that my word sounds hard, but please hear my heart. I consider you a child, and no father wants for their child just to, just to crash and burn. I want for you to succeed. He's saying, I came to you as a father, but you know one thing that I've noticed about you? Paul says to the Corinthians, you have countless guides in Christ, but you do not have many fathers Literally, if we can get into the weeds just a little bit, the Greek word that is used here for countless is literally the word that can be translated 10,000. Read it that way. For though you have 10,000 guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers I've seen videos online about this, this epidemic of young men going to college and not knowing how to tie a necktie. And so what they do is, um, and, and just, just to, to, to clear the innocent, my dad taught me how to tie a tie, okay? I'll be honest, it was a little 1980s. It was a double Windsor, and it was about that big, right? You know? But I knew how to tie a tie when I went to college. But YouTube is teaching people, teaching young men how to do these, these things that they never learned from someone, from a neighbor or from a father, or from a father figure, right? What Paul is saying here, he's saying, listen, you might have 10,000 guides. If I can really get into the weeds, although I think that you all appreciate really digging into the text, that the subjunctive case is used here. It's a subjunctive verb, which is how we say might or may, okay? So what Paul is saying, though you may have 10,000 guides in Christ, you see how that changes you know, the sound? Though you might have 10,000 guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. If we could bring this into our day, it would sound like this. Though you have 10,000 devotional books on your shelf, you do not have anybody who will take you by the hand and show you what it means to follow Jesus into the next season of life. Though you have 10,000 Puritan paperbacks, if I can point the finger at me for a minute, 
Though you have 10,000 YouTube pastors or 10,000 podcast sermons on your phone, you have not found a master, you've not found a father, you've not found a mother or someone who can apprentice you. You have 10,000 platforms and you'll go and, and, and sit in a cushioned seat in a big sanctuary and listen to some guy on a platform 500 yards away, but you do not have any fathers who will show you what it looks like to get into the trenches and follow Jesus and understand the scriptures. Church, we talk a great deal here about meaningful church membership. You, you hear me use that phrase a lot about bearing one another's burdens, holding one another accountable in our next steps class. We were going over these things today from Galatians and Hebrews 10. You hear me use, using phrases like, we need to do what is hard but healthy. You hear me using those phrases. And the reason that I make so much of this is because we live in the subscription generation, don't we? Have you noticed that everything is on a subscription now? Have you noticed that you can't actually own anything anymore? Right? You can't own that movie. You can't own that program on your computer. You can just rent it forever. Right? Everything has gone to a subscription now. But the problem is that our sanctification... Our growth in Jesus can't be put on a subscription. It can't be mediated through an app and it can't be received or downloaded off of the internet. To really know the mystery of following Christ demands flesh and blood relationships. It demands humbling ourselves and asking an older brother or sister, would you show me? Would you take me there? It means identifying someone and it also means being willing to be that person. For someone else. We, we simply can't get our bachelors in Christianity from the University of Jerusalem online. We have to take on an apprenticeship. If we're ever going to know the fullness of what it is, we must submit ourselves to fathers and mothers in the faith. Titus chapter 2 talks about this. It says, older men, be this way so that the younger men could be sensible, pure, an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Paul tells the old men to be examples so that the young men could be discipled. It tells older women to be reverent in their behavior not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind. And the list goes on. Friends, if I could, I'm trying to say this in a fatherly way. I'm not trying to chastise. I'm certainly not pointing fingers at us. I'm just, I'm making some observations from our broader Christian culture isn't it true that we know how to sit in a Sunday school class? Isn't it true that we know how to order a curriculum and read out of it? But do we know how to make a disciple? Do we know how to be discipled? This is the very question that Paul is asking the, the Corinthians to contemplate. You have 10,000 guides do you have any fathers? Do you have any mothers in the faith? 
Paul goes on, if you can read with me, verses 16 and 17, and he says something that is actually quite shocking at first blush. He says this in verses 16 and 17, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. What Paul says here sounds to us like pride. It sounds to us like sheer arrogance. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. I mean, doesn't that just drip with pride? Doesn't that just drip with arrogance? When Paul says, be imitators of me, I want to address something here about what Paul is saying and what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying, hey guys, I'm the varsity Christian and because I have arrived and because I've got this whole thing figured out, y'all need to be doing your best to get on board and follow me and be a lot like me. It's not the attitude that Paul is coming across with here at all. After all, notice what he says in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says this, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want to remind you a little bit about Paul's resume He wrote four letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He wrote them from prison. This is not a guy who's trying to build a brand. This is not a guy who's trying to expand his platform. This is not a guy who's trying to do the very same thing he just got done criticizing. Like all these teachers are are trying to build a following and trying to build a brand and they're trying to expand their brand. He said, I'm not interested in doing that. What Paul is interested in doing is suffering for the gospel. So that, his words sound just a little bit different when you remember his resume, don't they? Paul is not saying, hey guys, I've arrived, so follow me. Paul is instead saying, hey, guys, I've looked at the gospel and I've seen it as beautiful and as a result, I'm willing to endure all kinds of pain and hardship. And if you want to follow me, if you want to go with me, there's a seat in my car for you. Let's go. This is what Paul's saying. Listen, to, listen again to 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 11, as he gives us just a little bit of his resume. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, uh, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of all my anxiety of the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? 
Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. You see, Paul is saying, I'm willing to be poorly clothed. I'm even willing to be homeless over the gospel. And if you want to follow me, you're welcome. You're welcome to follow me as I seek to follow Jesus. Friends, this is not a guy who's trying to boost his ego. This is a guy who's trying to be a spiritual father. He's trying to open up the doors for anybody who wants to take on this apprenticeship to come alongside him. And let me give you a caution. Let me give you a caution. The devil at this moment will creep into your mind and will plant seeds that sound very spiritual to keep you from doing this. He will plant seeds of false humility. It'll sound very humble, the thoughts that roll around in your head. They'll sound like this. You'll think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not far enough down the road to, to offer my life to that brand new believer. And I'll probably lead him astray or something like that. Better just leave it to the professionals. Friends, I think that part of creating a healthy future for our church involves multiplying disciple makers. It involves those of you who might not think that you're ready, realizing that you do have something to offer, those who might just be a couple steps behind you. And it's not prideful to say that, right? It's never prideful to obey God. It's never prideful to do what the Bible says. Those who are good examples are ready to do hard things. Lastly, I want to encourage you to see this. The man is coming back. Remember that the man is coming back. I'm going to start all the way back at the beginning of our passage and read through the end. So we're going to read verses 14 through 21 with special attention on verses 18 through 21. So read with me verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, though you have 10,000 guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? 
Paul is, is a father of this church in Corinth, and, and of course, Corinth was planted, the church in Corinth was planted on one of his early missionary journeys, but he planted the church and he moved on, and, and he's traveling, and he's hearing reports back of what's going on back at that church in Corinth. They got some issues, and he's trying to write letters to them from a distance to help them, but he's saying, listen, guys, y'all are starting to act like I'm not coming back. Y'all are starting to act like I'm just an idea, like I'm just a ghost, an apparition who writes letters from time to time, but you know that I'm going to be dropping back in on you. Would you rather that I come with the belt to go out behind the woodshed? Or would you rather I come in gentleness? So this is like when you're, you're playing ball out in the yard and you're throwing the baseball toward the house and mom has told you not to throw the baseball toward the house but you keep throwing the baseball toward the house because that's what little boys do but then you throw the baseball just a little too hard and you break the window and your mom comes out and what does she say? She says, just wait until your father gets home. Right, it's like you're acting out there in the yard like there's not going to be a return. You're acting like the man is not coming back. But the man is coming back. My kids do this all the time. It's like we leave them in the room for five minutes and they start getting into some mischief that we've told them a hundred times never to get into. And because we leave and we're out of sight, it's like out of sight, out of mind. Do you not think that we're coming back like in five minutes to check on you, right? What kind of mess have you gotten yourselves into now? Friends, there's a connection. There's a connection between us and the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This church had been left there, planted by a spiritual father. And that spiritual father says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back to judge what's going on here, to render a verdict. Friends, we too have been put here by a father. We've been put here at this church to become Trenton Baptist Church, those who have covenanted together to form this church. And the man is coming back here too. The man is coming back around. Jesus will return. And he will return to evaluate who we have been, and what we have done. And it would be foolish for us to act like he's not coming back. Just like it would have been foolish for the church in 1 Corinthians to act like Paul was not going to be swinging back through town. At a day that nobody expected, he shows back up, he rolls back into town, and it's like, uh-oh, we haven't been doing what he left us here to do. We're going to read in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. The church had been organizing itself in unhealthy ways, had been listening to bad voices, and even they've been tolerating gross sexual immorality. They've been turning a blind eye toward it. And Paul just says, guys, I mean, what are you doing? You, you know that I'm coming back. Friends, the one thing that I can tell you about us and here and the way that we are to organize ourselves and the way that we are to live our lives is that when the man comes back around, the one thing that won't matter is what other people thought of us. The one thing that won't matter is whether we were perceived as just a little too serious. 
The one thing that won't matter is whether we were perceived as a little too liberal or a little too conservative. The one thing that won't matter is whether all of our preferences and our traditions were satisfied. The one thing that will matter is were we pleasing to God and did we live by the instructions that he left us with? That's what's going to matter when the man comes back around. Luke chapter 12 gives us a reminder. I want to read it to you. Luke chapter 12, just three verses here says this. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Mark 13 expands on this a little bit. It says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. Friends, we have to ask ourselves a couple of very poignant questions. Are we, as a church, ready for the man to come back around? How would he find us if it occurred this afternoon? What would his verdict on us be? And friends, I, I feel obligated to ask you, are you young man, young woman, older man, older woman, are you individually ready for the man to come back around? Do you stand today in Christ? Are your sins forgiven? Have you cried out to God to give you new life, to wash all of your old sins away and to give you a new heart filled with new desires? Have you been regenerated have you come to hate your sin and to love Christ? Are you ready for the man to come back around? The good news is, there is still time this morning. Would you come to him? Let's pray.